What does this mean? Martin Luther asked that question 500 years ago to help regular people connect to the Christian journey. We believe it's still a really good question. In the next few minutes, the pastors of Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, will talk about some of the Bible lessons that we read in church, connecting a 2,000-year-old book to real life in the 21st century. Welcome to What Does This Mean? I'm Pastor Bradley Schmeling. I'm Pastor Lois Palmeyer. And I'm Pastor Javen Swanson. We decided to do this podcast because sometimes the Bible is really clear and makes a lot of sense, and sometimes it's really confusing and hard to wring some truth out of it. So we want to talk about the lessons that we're reading on Sunday and help to take this book that's a couple thousand years old and have it be relevant for us in the 21st century. We're reading through lessons that occur in the season of Lent. This week will be the lessons for the second Sunday in Lent. And I actually have a little Lent tidbit for you. Oh, go for it. So Lent comes from an old, the word Lent comes from an old English word, Lankton, which sounds a lot like lengthen. That's what it means. It means it refers to the days getting longer as spring approaches. And um, just as the earth sort of sees a rebirth and renewal and we start seeing signs of new life emerging around us, um, so Lent is a time for us to sort of prepare ourselves for new life emerging around us. And I think it's interesting. We do this, you know, Christmas happens It's timed with the winter solstice to come during the darkest time of the year. Light is coming into the world just when the world seems to be at its very darkest, as if to tell us the world won't be dark and hopeless forever. And now during the season of approaching spring, as the days are getting longer and we see signs of new life, um, we ourselves are preparing for that new life coming at Easter. So I think it's, it's cool that the liturgical calendar kind of follows the Earth's calendar. Right. I love that. Mother, At least mo- for those of us on the northern hemisphere. Right, I always right. wonder how confusing <laughs> right. it is to celebrate Christmas on the no, longest exactly day of the right, year right. in the southern hemisphere. To do some mental work with that. Well, let's <laughs> let's take a look at the readings. Uh, Pastor Javen, why don't you give us some background on the first reading? Sure. Uh, the first reading is from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 12 and verses 17 and 18. So, of course, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. You know, in the very beginning of Genesis, we've gotten Adam and Eve and Noah's Ark, and now we've been introduced to Abraham, who has been promised, he's, what, 99 years old, and has been promised, he and Sarah, a great multitude of descendants. And so now we're a few chapters later, And we get this passage. Pastor Bradley, would you read it for us? Sure. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, 
O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Thanks, Pastor Bradley. So as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, Abraham, well, Abram and this passage, he's not yet Abraham, that's coming up. But Abram has been promised these multitudes of descendants. And that promise has actually come a few times already. And he, as it says here, has continued childless. And it makes me wonder, how do we as modern people of faith continue to believe in the promise of good news when we see around us that it's not all good, actually. And God keeps telling us God wants abundant life for us and God wants us to be healthy and have these, you know, joyful lives. And and yet people get sick. People have horrible illnesses. People have accidents. People, there's all sorts of ways that we experience not that. And how do we continue to have faith in the promise in the face of all of that? And actually, I think most of the Bible is a story of, is multiple stories, but it's a story of the Israelites and God's people wrestling with that very question. How do we continue to have faith to trust in God in the face of struggle. So, and I don't know that we have an easy answer to that actually, but I think what Abraham demonstrates is an ability to to continue to believe and trust and to follow even when he's 99 years old and still doesn't have any kids. <laughs> right. Yeah. And God continuing to remind him, I haven't forgotten you. Right. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forgotten the promise. Stay with me. I've got you. I like this um, verse of, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. I was hearing a few weeks ago this story of how right as you're falling asleep, if you teach yourself to wake up right then, 
you sometimes are having really some very clear thought. And apparently a couple of famous people wrote that down or wrote down their dreams or their images as they were just falling asleep. And I thought of that. It's like, oh, did Abram have some sense of, ah, God's telling me this. This is what I need to hold on to. That way, when you're waking up from a dream and you think, oh, that's perfect. I want to think about that. And then as soon as you try to describe it, it doesn't make any right. sense. Well, it falls yeah, away from you. Yeah, can, and can we talk about this weird <laughs> part of the text where this, you just there's all these animals cut up well, the in pieces. Birds and on, The birds aren't cut in half. So <laughs> right. I love that. They, yeah, like, thank you. Thank you for us. saying yeah. that. So I panicked a little bit when I saw I was assigned this text for today. <laughs> and I read that and I thought, oh, man. And so I went and did some research. And you know what the what most commentators say is like they're just as confused as we are about it, which is – Good news for me anyway. Right. <laughs> but but actually they said it appears to be sort of a primitive ritual and there's some sort of profound connection between God and Abram in this strange ritual. And maybe it's enough for us to say we don't really get it either and it seems really bizarre. Well, when th- this is the place where faith gets lived, where is it a dream or not a dream? Yeah, no, it's – it's realer than a dream. I, I know it. Something in me knows it. The word of the Lord came to us. And so we're going to hold on to these promises. But I'm kind of not sure. You know? I love mm. that. And and again, this bizarre picture of the birds of prey coming down and Abram swatting them away. Something about, no, I'm not exactly sure what this all means, but don't you take it away from me. You know, get away those things that are going to try and poke at it or nope. Nope, I'm going to hold on to something God is trying don't to show me. Don't pick on my carcass. <laughs> don't pick on my carcass. That's their Back off. <laughs> That's your message okay. for today. Yeah, That's right. Good. Birds Thanks of be prey, to God. back off. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, maybe we should take a little break here and go on to the next reading. next reading is in Philippians 3, the end of that chapter, verses 17 through the first verse of chapter 4. So Philippians three seventeen through chapter 4, verse 1. In this section, Paul is writing a letter to the church in Philippi, and these were people he loved um, and had a great relationship with, but wants to remind them over and over again that suffering and loss are part of the story of being God's people. He himself is in jail when he writes this, and he wants to remind them of that so that they don't get discouraged by hard things that happen in their life. Pastor Javen, you want to read that for us? Sure. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory, 
by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. Such beautiful, that last line especially so beautiful. Thank you. Um, Paul clearly has a sense of the physical reality of God's presence in his life. There's a lot of descriptions of his body, uh, talking about the tears and their belly and the body of our humiliation might be conformed to the body of God's glory. This sense of recognizing, I think what he's saying is God's revelation to us comes in our bodies, not just in our little hearts or minds or some idea out in the clouds, but it really happens in the lives of real humans in their distress sometimes. There's the sense of someone he knows is living, he calls it enemies of the cross. And we we sometimes talk about a, a theology of the cross or a theology of glory. There's a sense of people saying, God is good, so everything I have is good, and my body should be perfect, and my life should be perfect, and I have I should have perfect things around me, and my own physical comfort is just what it's supposed to be. It's always supposed to be good. That, I think, is what Paul's talking about, serving their bellies, that sense of just making everything delicious and perfect in our life. But instead, we have this truth of Jesus on a cross, that God comes to us in our pain, in the sorrow of the world, in the brokenness of the world, in the uh, humiliation when our stories aren't going so well and our stories aren't so beautiful. I think sometimes passages like this can be tough for us to hear for those of us who are pretty comfortable and don't have a whole lot of suffering in our lives. Most Mostly we have bounty. And Paul is reminding us, mm, bounty doesn't in itself prove that God is faithful to you. Actually, God God comes to us in, in suffering and in our um, humility, in our sometimes in our brokenness. But that line, our citizenship is in heaven. I think of that as being an invitation to the common good or the, the you know, if you think of the citizenship of heaven, that all people are being served and all people are being held in wholeness that that's really where our values come from. Our citizenship comes from the values that are shared and people are being treated well. This, uh, when we, or when we pray, um, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven, that what we're really asking for is, God, let all those shared values of goodness and kindness and wholeness be for us in our life now so that we're not putting our own comfort above others but are able to serve one another. He writes this even even while he's in jail. So he mm-hmm. really wants to say, my personal comfort isn't as important to me as making sure we're preaching the values of love and kindness and what Jesus really was here to share with right. us. I think that it's important to note that he's writing this from prison. He's not writing this from his comfortable hotel room outside of Rome, but really struggling with what does it mean to trust the promises of Christ and still experience suffering, that God is at work doing something that I might not be able to immediately see or experience, but somehow this humiliation is going to be transformed and used for something 
good in the world. Um, so maybe that links a little bit to Abram's story of saying, I'm 99 and I don't see anything here. Are you sure your promises are really good for me? Right. And again, Paul saying, I do trust the promise, even though I'm in prison, I'm in chains. Right. He writes other places. I just think of Paul sitting in prison and thinking, I could have chosen a different path here that wouldn't have landed me in prison, but it wouldn't have been faithful to the gospel I was called to embody. And and he sits in prison and thinks of people on the outside. He weeps for them thinking they're just so blind to what the possibilities were here in the gospel. And Paul is willing to go all the way following Jesus that lands him in prison. And yet he has this deep, deep faith, maybe like Abram, that even though he isn't seeing the hope here, that there is something good in the future for him. I think this is one of those texts that's hard to take from this setting and translate it into the 21st century. It takes a lot of work to take language from someone sitting in prison writing it, being persecuted for the gospel to Americans who live with great wealth and privilege. And while we all certainly have our struggles and our challenges, uh, most of us are not being sent to prison because of our faith. But maybe it does make us think about when are the times we avoid any consequences for the faith? When we let things pass, we hear racist comments, we see sexism happening, we see someone deciding, well, no one's going to look, so let's just let's just take this uh, that for us to speak up and to name our faith out loud does sometimes have consequences that might not be prison, but cut us off from things that we appreciate or or hold us. And so maybe this text calls us to think about what are we risking for the faith? When is it on the line that we need to to speak up and lay down our chips? Mm-hmm. And it may not land us glory if we make the right choice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, we should pause. I always hate to cut off good conversation. We'll take a little break and come back with the gospel reading. Our gospel for the second week of Lent is from Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Just to give a little background, 
Jesus has been on the road toward Jerusalem since uh, chapter 9, and as he's going towards Jerusalem, he's doing all the things that he feels compelled to do as part of God's plan for his life. He feeds the hungry. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He welcomes strangers. So he's literally witnessing to the world that God wants for all of us. But as he goes, increasingly there's tension that as he gets to Jerusalem, the powers that be will not like what he's doing and will find a way to silence him. So he gets almost to Jerusalem, and this is where our text occurs. Pastor Lois, would you read it? Yes. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me, listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Lois. This is one of those dramatic Uh, portions of scripture, I think, where Jesus absolutely understands what's going to happen to him. And before he enters Jerusalem, he sort of takes a step back and in a sense reflects on the big picture of it all. He's about to enter into the deepest conflict and pain and suffering that one can possibly experience, crucifixion. And his reaction to all of that isn't to run away or to necessarily blame. He's he's sad about what Jerusalem is going to do. He's not he's not the prophet who's standing on the edge yelling at Jerusalem, but has this deep sense of compassion, which is one of the things I take from this passage is when we are faced with conflict or difficulty, we have this set of of choices of how to respond. I'm reading this little book right now that my mom gave me for Christmas that's called How to Argue with a Cat. A Human's Guide to the Art of Persuasion. It's by Jay Heinrichs, and he teaches uh, persuasion and rhetoric. And there's a chapter about in the face of conflict, you can, number one, blame somebody else. Number two, you can assassinate their character. Or three, you can reach into the future and decide how to move forward 
and change things. And he makes the point that most of us end up spending our conflict time in number one or number two. We blame somebody else or we just say, oh, they're a, they're a bad person or you're a bad person because you didn't put the dishes away correctly in the dishwasher. You know, whatever it is that we face, that's a little different than crucifixion, <laughs> the dishwasher. Right. Right. Modern American, <laughs> first trauma. world trauma. trauma. <laughs> How do you put the dishes in the, the dishwasher? dishwasher. How it, it, often many I would have marriages stacked. come onto the rocks at the dishwasher. Um, but I think here's here's Jesus, who is able to reach into the heart of God and claim it as His own, and we get some of the most beautiful metaphors for the ministry of Jesus in all of Scripture, where Jesus is compared to the mother hen whose impulse is to gather and protect, you know, the chicks under the wing. And this is one of the places uh, where God is portrayed with beautiful feminine characteristics. I think that's important to note in this text. So beautiful. This sense of him recognizing destruction and pain and instead of yeah cursing it or uh, demanding it to change he longs for them to see themselves as beloved as little children you know little chicks um longs for them to see themselves in the love and care of god instead of the destruction that they want to cause or that he knows is coming I was struck by that line, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And I was just thinking, you know, Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish faith. And it was I – I was thinking of like our Washington, D.C. Like we go there and we are amazed by all the monuments and we – we want to see all these amazing things and the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson Memorial. You know, we see all these things and yet – and because we love it so much and what it symbolizes and stands for, we are so disappointed when we see it failing us. And I think maybe that's a, a sort of similar thing going on here, that Jerusalem is this beloved place that has so much history for these people. and That's supposed to be the best of the best. Is right. This is where God's way should be so clear and so profound. Right. But instead... It's killing our prophets. Right. Mm -hmm. It's doing the opposite. Right. And so the lament about that, when we see this place that we hope and expect to be so profound, profoundly faithful, doing just the opposite, it hurts. Yeah. It's, it's great instruction, too, on how to pray that we don't we talk about praising God or giving thanks to God, but we don't talk as much about just lamenting to God, saying out loud, God, why does this have to be this way? Um, and I think that's as faithful a prayer as the Thanksgiving prayers that we mm -hmm. make. Mm -hmm. So maybe our question here. To pose the last question relates to the heart of Jesus. 
and makes us ask where, again, is our heart and how how does our lives beat with that same compassionate, gathering, loving impulse that Christ had. Um, I think that's probably one of the calls during Lent. Well, we're finished for the second week of Lent. Thank you both so much. We're glad that you could join us, and we would love to hear what you have to say. So drop us a note at pastors at gloriadaystpaul.org. If you want to know more about Gloria Day Lutheran Church, you can find us at gloriadaystpaul.org or just Google Gloria Day Lutheran Church St. Paul. You'll find us. Join us for worship every Sunday at either 8.15 or 10.45 or now during Lent on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. We have Sunday school for all ages at 9.30 in the morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. Know that God is with you, God loves you, and God will provide what you need for today. This has been What Does This Mean? A podcast created by Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find Gloria Day online at www.gloriadaystpaul.org. This podcast has been produced by Minnesota Podcasting, and they can be found online at www.mnpodcasting.com.